And I was having Iranians send me voice notes from inside Iran. And, you know, they said, we love the Israelis. Like, we think they're, uh, you know, we feel like we have a lot in common with them. And it's our governments who are trying to make us hate each other. I was embedded with the Saudi military when they started their Yemen war. And I was wearing an abaya and hijab under my flak jacket and helmet. The polarization of the world benefits certain people who are in power and peace would put quite a few people out of jobs. I'm Ian Allen, and this is Steel Man Straw Man. Well, thank you for agreeing to do this, especially now. I mean, a little bit, I don't know how much of a chance you had to look at what we're trying to do. We started this under the recognition that there are 60 million people getting their news from short form video on social media and linear cable is dying. You know, the big major media brands like the Times and the Post and the Journal are, are you know, relatively fixed. I don't know. They're, certainly the Times had enormous growth over the last 10 years, but they seem to stabilize. So it's just it feels to me like there's this, you know, in the media world, you know, a hurricane has come through and is and it's sort of the new environment is settling. And it's a longer story that's worth getting into how I got interested in this. But the end result is we could make relatively objective. I write a lot about the pursuit of objectivity. I mean, we're not objective, but we try to pursue objectivity. Um, we're, we try to be, we try to acknowledge our biases and we try to produce short form content on social media that is as straight as we can make it, but takes on the most challenging topics. And the, and the thesis is that that's how, that's how you grow the audience is you have to react very quickly to things that are incredibly emotional. And there is a big enough thirst out there for people who are just like right at this moment, people who are just deeply disturbed, but really don't have a handle on don't, that, 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 that can't situate this moment in history. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm getting that just on my Instagram. The I, I've screen, I can send them to you. I've screenshotted them and put them in a folder. I've been collecting just like just how many people are reaching out to me with questions, like saying they, they want to understand more. They don't know who to trust. Um, but also on top of that, like just phone calls, emails, messages, randomly, people out of nowhere saying, hey, I've been following your coverage on social media and, you know, I really appreciate it and it's really, you know, measured and et cetera, right? Um, because I think what's happening and part of the reason why I, I kind of fell into this, I mean, I, it didn't happen on purpose, um, but after being at the BBC for so long and after so many years of having the editors pull me aside and say, hey, how do we reach younger audiences? And me saying, we need to go to them, not expect them to come to us. They're not going to sit down and watch the 10 o'clock news. I mean, I, I'm a TV person. I'm a TV correspondent. I'm a TV anchor. And I didn't really watch TV. So <laughs> yeah. we expect the audience to do that. Um, and so I actually started these News with Sue's videos about five years ago, um, where I would just do kind of straight, non-produced, really just like straight to the camera videos explaining a story in the news. And it started to pick up. Um, but 
that, you know, like when you're on staff with a news organization, that doesn't really fit when you're in a big organization. Right. Now, um, I've been speaking a lot about taking the influencer model, which was something that I discovered in Dubai because I would I moved to Dubai and I was meeting these people new to town, meeting people that were connecting me to, you know, especially women. And I would say, oh, what do you do? And they say, I'm an influencer. And I'm like, what does that mean? And then I would look at their Instagram. Stories. They have like a million Instagram followers and brand deals. And I'm like, hold on a minute. So why don't we just take the model and apply it to the news which is which is difficult and this is what i've been doing with helmet to heels which is essentially using fashion travel and uh, uh, verticals that are aesthetically popular on instagram to influence the audience into paying attention to then sort of be like hey get ready with me while i tell you about what's happening to the women of afghanistan right. where have just been closed and they are slowly being erased from existence right. and it's worked and i actually thought that brands especially fashion brands would shy away from things that are too political that is the opposite i've had people i've had brands send me like dresses and say can you please wear our, our dress at the women of iran awards because we want to support the women of iran and so I love what you're doing. I think like there's so that there's so much synergy here because there's very much it's not just it's not just a gap in the market, it's a need. And I think yeah. this story right now, I am absolutely blown away at the reaction that I'm getting. I've never gotten this kind of reaction from my television coverage. And that was the BBC to 365 million people around the world. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. And um, I, I did back to the business point. Like, I, I agree, like brands, like brands right now, I mean, brands have obviously been having an increasingly difficult time navigating um, their consumers who expect them to have certain values. And those values can be relatively basic. They can be we support democracy or we support, you know, uh, women's rights. It, it, they don't have to they don't have to take super hard positions always, but they definitely have to communicate that they care and share some values. And it's just going to get in increasingly more important right now, 2024 election and, and forward. Well, because the consumer is really conscious about where, like for fashion, for example, they're really conscious about who they're wearing and what they're wearing. So sustainability, um, but also where the brand stands on xyz issues like they particularly the younger generation um and so that's something that's something that corporations really need to be thinking that and i also think you know like news organizations i mean the bbc right now is just really tying itself up and tying itself up and unnecessary knots over impartiality christiana manpour says be truthful not neutral and Every time somebody asks me about the BBC stances, I just read this quote. My <laughs> thoughts are this quote. <laughs> like, right, right. I don't know if you know, but I I um, created and host this series called Women Building Peace, which started at the BBC, and now the BBC has said that they can't afford to continue it, uh, and so I'm branching out independently to continue just recently, it. Recently, they recently just said this. Wow. 
Um, but it won. So we did one. So that was a podcast. We did one video out of it, which was Hillary Clinton speaking directly to an Afghan girl in a safe house hiding from the Taliban. And it was so powerful. That video won an award. And this is this is why journalism matters. And this is why I sometimes when I'm just so emotionally drained and exhausted, like covering Gaza, um, I, I, I remember this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And we her name was Lamarzala Gran. We shortened her name to Lama for security reasons. Although, you know, she even even when we were trying to protect her identity, she didn't want to, you know, she didn't want to erase herself right um and so for a year she was in hiding hiding between safe houses because the taliban was hunting her family um because of her dad's work her dad was one of the one of the allies that was left behind so she got out and now she's actually in the u.s she got a scholarship and now she's at continuing her education and she told me she said that thank you for giving me a voice and she has been holding UN officials feet to the fire about forgetting the women of Afghanistan. She's been writing and she said that that experience, having access and being able to directly speak to, you know, somebody of influence who, you know, says that they are helping others, having that kind of accountability conversation, she told me, gave her the strength to carry on while she was in hiding and had no idea when it was going to end. She attributed it to being like Anne Frank. She said, my experience was like Anne Frank, where I was hiding and I didn't know what was going to happen. It wasn't as tragic. But these women have been forgotten. And it's not just the women of Afghanistan who've been forgotten. It's the women of Iran who are still fighting. I mean, they're 120 miles away from me right now, the equivalent of the distance between Washington and Philadelphia. Um, And it took so much effort for the Iranian women to get the attention of the world. Um, And it didn't last that long. So I'm actually encouraged that right now the Palestinian cause is getting so much attention. Uh, because the Iranian women did not experience that. And, uh, and, and I mean, I could go on, like, there's, there's just so many stories and so many cases. But, but also what was part of women building peace was that we highlighted that when women have been at the table, they have been successful at bringing peace, like places like Belfast, for example, Colombia, one of my episodes was on Colombia. I mean, you know, the Iran deal is a, is a tricky one, because it's so partisan and uh and perfect but i did a piece about the women of the iran nuclear deal yeah that's a long answer to your question <laughs> well can you I, I mean in follow-up no it's really good i mean the next thing i was going to ask you is i i i know this will be hard to do well if we have time then that's great but i wanted to trace the arc of your career over the past however much time it makes sense maybe five years earlier what you know how, how you got like bbc what you covered where you've been and what you're doing now so I started my career at NBC News um, during the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. <laughs> I actually started in the middle. My family thought I was absolutely insane that my very expensive education had been translated to a job that made like $8 an hour. I literally think it was $8 an hour now. Um, so I started in NBC News mailroom, but I promised them that it would work out and buy by the following year, I was following Obama around as part of the press pool. So it did work out. Uh, and then the Arab Spring 
kicked off and my background was conflict and you know conflict and security and uh, particularly focused on the Middle East and Europe and um, so I ended up at the BBC and I ran around the world for the BBC for over a decade uh, through various postings. I was posted posted in Beirut in 2014, which turned out to be the ISIS wars and um, the last really bad Gaza war. I mean, 2021 was pretty bad, but 2014 was really bad. Um, I actually landed an interview with the Hamas leader in exile then, Khaled Mishal in Doha. And that was when I was traveling. I was in the diplomatic press corps then. So I used to travel with the Secretary of State. And it was this very surreal experience of like leaving the diplomatic bubble in Cairo and going to Doha and sitting down with this, you know, this guy who is designated as a terrorist leader by the United States government, at least, uh, and and just calmly listening to some discussing, um, you know, lying, frankly, because we said, why are you using civilians and women and children as human shields? And the same things that he said then is exactly what he said to the Al Arabiya presenter. Um, this interview is going viral now. Uh, the big difference is that this is a this time. This time he's really had his feet held to the fire um, by an, an Arab woman presenter from the region. So that's a, that's a big deal. So it really tells you about the shift towards the views towards Hamas since then, since 2014. So then I moved back to the U.S. and then the 2016 elections rolled around. I was embedded with Hillary Clinton. So... That whole massive surprise that took the whole world by surprise. I was there front and center. Uh, I was actually thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about, because Jake Sullivan is obviously now a very powerful man. Uh, At the time, he was running Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I remember, you know, how it is like when you're in the when you're in the press pool, you you have access to the same stuff. And so getting scoops and exclusives is like pretty difficult. And I had drawn the straw that got me like the really crappy seats. I was in like very last row with all the photographers and all of their kit. It's okay. But we were flying from Vegas, I want to say, on her plane, and suddenly I noticed like Jake somehow managed to like sneak back through the press press corps. No one noticed except for Jake. And I said, "Well, what are you? What, how are you feeling? Like, what are you thinking?" And he just goes, "One way or another, this is all over on Tuesday." And I just remember thinking that is not the response of a man who is about to be running the world in the White House of the first female president of the United States. And I remember telling my team this, and then we got off uh, in uh, Pittsburgh. We had a stop at Pittsburgh, and we kind of left, left the pool and went and did it. I was doing interviews with people standing outside of a soup kitchen, and everybody was voting for Trump. And I went back to my team. And I said, guys, I don't know if Hillary's got this in the bag. And they said, oh, what are you talking about? Our, our camera guy is Australian. And he's like, what are you talking about? Mate? Look at and I there, yeah, okay, he's right, of course. Look at the polls. Wow. So the, I ended up on the Trump-Russia investigation beat. 
which entailed a lot of a lot of vodka and trying to get people <laughs> what was happening. Yeah, running around the world. Yeah, that was. Do you have Do you have a thirty second? I mean, I know it's impossible. Do you, Do you have? Can we take a quick detour on that and your take on those years in the investigation and the way it was covered? I felt vindicated when the Mueller report came out because I felt like something was really off. And Russian provocatia is very real. Yeah, they're good at it. I think that's, and I think they played all of us, every single side of whatever side that you were on, which obviously as the journalists in the chat, I'm supposed to be on no side and I maintained that. Um, but I was on the side of, wow, America, the United States of America's national security infrastructure is in some big trouble because Russia has managed to completely sow chaos in all of our minds without actually having to do a whole lot of, you know, the kind of intelligence work that one would think is necessary in order to pull this off. Yeah, it's like their their greatest their, their greatest covert action success was convincing us that they had great covert action success. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I still hear stories like I was recently told that Mossad had seen the so-called P tape, and I was like, man, I wouldn't knew that because I sat in front of the former head of Mossad last year for my Iran versus Israel documentary and. After an hour and a half of interrogating him, which he, he basically said you were interrogating him, kind of was. Um, I, you know, I got a, I got him to say, "I'm not going to admit to targeted assassination in Iran," and I was like, "Well, you just." Um, so, wow. but yeah, I was like, "Well, if I'd known that, I would have asked him." Asked about the pizza. Asked about the pizza. Okay, so then there's a bunch of things to come back to, but but after the Russia investigation, where'd you go? So then after the Russia investigation, truthfully, I was completely exhausted. And I went to L.A. and I um, took a bit of a sabbatical from Daily News. It was teaching a course on public diplomacy at UCLA, uh, which is why now all of this Gaza war coverage is is you know i'm seeing exactly what i used to teach which is all of the you know there's 19 biases cognitive biases that we know of and and media particularly state media all has their narrative that they want to project to the world and we are seeing that in the most amplified of ways right now particularly in the middle east because like every country around me right now has a stake in this and has a story to tell and has a means to uh, of disseminating that story and i don't really think the average member of the audience really knows that um, so yeah, so and I, I like teaching students because it's just you feel like you're sort of shaping the future in some way. Uh, and then I moved back to DC. I was going to move to London for what was my dream job, and then the pandemic happened, and so I was like, right, I'm stuck in DC. Um, but obviously, the pandemic was a huge story. It covered 2020. 
from Georgia, which was my home, is my hometown, my home state. Atlanta is my hometown, my home county, my arena that I used to have basketball tournaments and, and violin recitals suddenly was the place where all of these ballots were being counted. And it was wow. Covering it, like watching them paint, um, rather count ballots at like 2 a.m. And it was like watching paint dry. And so, um, yeah, so it's just been ever since then, then I got into uh, mostly long form. So I started my series and I presented a couple documentaries all all around foreign policy and women in conflict. So all of my my on the ground work and experience is now being put into like long form journalism that can live on forever instead of, you know, I was, I mean, I loved running around Capitol Hill and doing live shots and, you know, recording exclusives of with, with Mitt Romney on my iPhone and then going live from the same iPhone and talking around that clip. Um, but then the Hill is a great beat, but it never changes. Although I have to say, I'm sort, I am sort of missing the speaker drama. I mean, this is a good oh, story. Unbelievable. <laughs> like this is this unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it would be front page above the fold day after day after day if it wasn't for uh, what's going on in Israel and Gaza. It's felt to me like, I mean, obviously misinformation has been around for a while now. The information war. I mean, the idea of the information war was a term coined in the '70s that just had to do with. Uh, increasingly complex weapon systems would need increasingly good information and denying the that information could deny the efficacy of complex weapons, but it has really morphed into something else. Um, so the, really the things I want to get into are one, your take on what you're seeing for misinformation, not only just on social media from individual creators or how states are feeding in. And then really uh, uh, the, big picture of the Arab view. I mean, you're, you're in Dubai right now. Um, what's, what is, you know, the Saudi view or Iran each like who, what are, what are the, the big information forces at work? Um, so maybe just start with going back to your course a little bit about what you taught about our cognitive biases and how that play, plays into it. Yeah. So, I mean, as you say, information war is nothing new, just like fake news is nothing new. I mean, fake news goes back to the American revolutionary era. Believe it or not, that is not a Trump thing. So I think when understanding how we present information, it's really important to understand how we in ingest information as well. Right. And I think that um, depending on the news outlet, you know, some news outlets understand that and use it and others maybe understand it and maybe don't use it so much. I mean, I think from the regional perspective right now, like Iran and Russia, as is very much a part of their playbook, I actually uh, co-authored a report at Atlantic Council um, about Iranian digital efforts, digital influence operations and guerrilla efforts. And they have been perfecting this for quite some time. Um, and also, you know, like, so this past UN General Assembly last month, I was in New York and I had conversations with Iranian officials. I have to be careful because it was, it was technically Chatham House rules. Um, but they made sure 
to have these conversations with various people um, because that is part of their public diplomacy campaign. And so they have this, their plausible deniability tactic is paramount in how they operate in the information game. And so, whereas, you know, they say, oh, this stuff is off the record, they're telling specific people because they want it out there because they want it in the, they want it in the space, but not necessarily attributed to whomever it is that said what. I mean, like, for example, in, in one of these conversations, the Saudi-Israel, I mean, you may have seen this, I tweeted about it. Um, the Saudi-Israel normalization talks came up and the official tone changed in a way that I clocked it. And I do wonder how much of this was like female intuition. I mean, because I obviously because of women building peace in particular, I, I I've studied a lot the difference between like how men and women operate in these spaces um, and immediately clock like tone changed, body language changed, facial expression suddenly existed. And it was just and like the and he, the language matters, too. Right. So I speak the language. I speak Farsi. And so hearing hearing how it was said in the language made a difference too and it was it hasn't happened yet but in this kind of now it just looks it seems eerily ominous right right of course when the when the attack happened the hamas attack in israel happened obviously everyone the first thing everyone said was well duh iran funds hamas so like they must have had something to do with it and then the wall street journal story came out but like my national U.S. national security sources pushed back hard. Um, jury is still out as to why, uh, whether it's it was truly not, a, not the report was truly not true or there's a reason why they want us to think it's not true. So, I mean, I think jury's still out on that. Um, and so uh, obviously, like the Iran angle, the Iran view of this is is really important and none of us can categorically say where they stand on it because there are factions within the country right now who don't agree with each other so it could be true that they didn't know it could be true that some knew so like all of these things that we've read could very much be true but i will say that last year when i had just moved to dubai and I was working my uh, on my uh, documentary Out of the Shadows, which is about the covert war between Iran and Israel, which is like you really need to understand this to understand what's happening today, because that's really what it comes down to. This whole thing is about Iran and Israel's war with each other. And obviously the Palestinian cause is, a, is its own issue, but it has become a major part of the Israel-Iran war. Um, and so anyway, during during this time, when I was doing my research, I spoke to one of my Iranian sources, I mean, a high level, has the ear of the Supreme Leader, and very difficult to get a hold of for obvious reasons. <laughs> In this particular case, felt the need to pick up the phone and call me and have a 45-minute conversation, wow. which is always tough. And said, listen, I'm really worried. You know, obviously was like, please don't quote me. 
so like really concerned about the whole plausible deniability thing um but was really concerned said was really concerned about an actual flare-up like an actual kinetic war for the first time felt concerned that this thing with this covert war might come out of the shadows as i ended up calling it and become a covert kinetic war on the surface so i really do wonder it, because, but then by the time the documentary released, which was October 22nd of last year, the Iran women-led revolution was happening. And they were hugely distracted with that. I do wonder if what we're seeing today was delayed by that. I do wonder. That's fascinating. Can you, can you situate this, all of this for us briefly, though? I, I mean, just a brief overview of Saudi Arabia v. Iran, Israel, like the just the geopolitical dynamics broadly. So a few weeks before the Hamas attack in Israel, I was in Saudi Arabia uh, for I was actually moderating a event at the UN World Tourism Organization had their day in Riyadh this year. They every year it rotates and they had it in Riyadh this year. And for the first time, the Israeli tourism minister was there. So the Israeli tourism minister was there. The Saudi tourism minister was there. The Iranian tourism minister was there. There was a Taliban minister there as well. Um, so it genuinely looked like, felt like conversations I was having with sounded like we were moving towards seeing a Saudi-Israel deal abraham accords 2.0 that looked like it was really on the horizon which obviously would not be a good thing for iran and iran had just joined this peace deal with saudi hosted by the chinese uh so i mean the timing is unsurprising in a way that's unsurprising. Uh, also, there was concern that the Palestinians would be completely forgotten in the course of Saudi and Israel normalizing. So this interview that I referred to about the the Arab woman presenter who who completely grilled Khaled Mishal, that was on Saudi state television. So that's really telling. Hugely so. And so... Everybody in the region has condemned Israel, has said that Israel is responsible for the hospital. Um, that was the immediate response. And I was texting with my sources and, you know, I said, look, the Americans say they've got this intel. And this was before the tape was released. Um, and they said, well, they haven't shared it with us. If they have it, they need to share it with us. And so I think I think the thing is, in this current climate, the the UAEs of the world, the Saudis of the world, are they're not going to come out and not condemn Israel. I mean, you know, civilians in Gaza are dying. So they're not going to not come out and condemn that. So why civilians are dying in because it's in response to a Hamas attack and they're hunting Hamas and Hamas is hiding among civilians. I mean, that's that's the whole, you know, that that is what's happening and that's what Israel says is happening, but that doesn't really make a difference to the Arab countries in the region because, you know, they have to stand up for the Palestinians. 
So, I mean, everyone's kind of holding their breath to see what happens with Iran um, and whether Iran joins the fight. It doesn't really look like they actually want to because it doesn't really look like it's going to really serve them. They'd just gotten this deal with the Americans where their billions and billions of dollars had been released. And now that's on ice again. Their economics that they, they are economically in huge trouble. They have massive infighting within their own ranks. And then also, you know, they've completely lost control of their women <laughs> so to them that's a big problem because they've lost control of the women are going out in the streets wearing tank tops and shorts and like literally in tehran i don't know about the rest of the country but i doubt in the rest of the country but it's happening in tehran which is like change enough uh so um yeah i mean it, it seemed like things were really quiet around here and for the first time we were genuinely moving towards peace like i when the um when the prisoner swap happened in august with the iranians and the americans and the money release was announced one of my sources who was staunchly anti-islamic republic i didn't hear from him and so i messaged him and i said you are awfully quiet about this i would think that you'd be up in arms and he said there's bigger fish frying in the background i was like what does that mean and it there was genuinely things happening in the background that looked like there was going to be a peaceful middle east and now it doesn't yeah now it doesn't um what is the view on the arab street as it were I mean, what is what is what's the what's being said on Arab media um, and how is that going to influence things? I have to say that it is actually quite shocking at how it seems like everyone here has gotten those horrific images from when the Hamas attack happened. I mean, the focus is 100 percent on Gaza and the fact that Israel is bombing Gaza and like the civilians in Gaza. I mean, the fact that there are, I mean, I guess now Israelis are saying that there's over 200 hostages being held by Hamas. Um, I mean, nobody's talking about the fact that there are children being held hostage by Hamas. Like that's not being talked about. Um, I think, I think all of the resentment towards Israel throughout the Israel-Palestine conflict has very much just bubbled to the surface. And, you know, there's a lot, there's, the, the, everybody's kind of seem, feels like everybody's just screaming that Israelis are, are carrying out genocide and America is helping. And I mean, truthfully, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit like, feeling like I need to be careful about how I am speaking to people on the street here because, because emotions are so high. Um, you know, they, the, the Arabs say that they feel like Israel is doing to the Palestinians, what the Nazis did to them, that they're carrying out, uh, you know, the generational trauma in the form of genocide towards Palestine. I mean, that is, that is what's happening. That is the narrative here. Uh, you know, Arab media is still saying that it was an Israeli airstrike on the hospital 
they're not saying well, they're not once. Uh, but what's interesting is that I obviously am very nuanced and subjective and impartial in my coverage on Instagram in particular, and and that's very difficult, and I try very hard to be that way. And I get comments from what is obviously Arab uh, Arab followers um, who come in hot, and then when I explain to them, they say, oh, you know, I, I'm really sorry. I totally understand what you mean. So there, I think the biggest takeaway I'm seeing is that there is no moderator of these two sides. Like these two sides are not talking to each other. They don't have access to each other. And that's what my Women Building Peace show is all about. It's about bringing together people who would normally never have access to each other, like Hillary Clinton and an Afghan girl in the middle of Afghanistan. Um, and that is, and and there is appetite for that. It's not that they're not talking to each other because they don't want to and they hate each other and they want to kill each other. That is not, that's not true. I mean, one of the one of the most interesting things I found in my uh, research for my Iran versus Israel documentary was when I interviewed people on the street, Israelis on the street in Tel Aviv about Iran, they're like, we're not worried about Iran. Like, we love the Iranians. We're worried about Hamas. So they said that to me. This was last year. And then same thing when I was having Iranians send me voice notes from inside Iran. And, you know, they said, we love the Israelis. Like, we think they're, uh, you know, we feel like we have a lot in common with them. And it's our governments who are trying to make us hate each other. But we don't hate each other. And I think that it's it's a similar thing when it comes to, you know, the Israel-Palestine conflict. And, I mean, prior to all of this, I there were loads of, I was hearing Hebrew more often than I could have ever imagined in Dubai. So what now? I mean, what do you back to the that that's the irony of the information age is that it's given it's it's harmed the flow of information in some ways as we've become increasingly siloed. I mean, what do we do? I think actually like people like us have our work cut out for us because big media is not doing that. Big media is not facilitating conversations they're not providing context they're not providing nuance they're they're not providing the education frankly that people need and it's all good and well to report the news yeah we need that but news without context is just creates emotion and i think emotion is necessary to drive action but emotion is also what disinformation uses for its cause. So I think I think there's I think there's the disinformation people and then there's the big news media people who, you know, either their state media and have their state agendas or their commercial media and have their commercial agendas and then there's like the in between. Yeah. With that in mind, you know, one of the things that struck and I, I don't even know how to be, phrase this really, but there was so much back and forth that that we are in a place where we're having back and forth about the manner in which babies were killed is just so profoundly disturbing. Um, and, I know. I, and I you know what it reminded me of it reminded me of that moment. Which obviously, this is like 
let's take the politics out of this particular example. But it reminded me of that moment when Hillary Clinton was in, um, in testifying in front of the Senate or the House or where she was testifying on Capitol Hill. And then she was like, what difference does it make? People are dead. And I'm like, yeah, that's what difference. Babies are dead. Babies are dead. Like, that's problem number one. Problem number one. And then to come over here and debate over how they were killed. I mean, yeah, Blinken said that they were bullet ridden bodies, baby bodies, and the Israeli government said they were beheaded. They're both absolutely horrific. One is like, you know, I think mind bogglingly more horrific than the other. Agree. But it's just like, how are we how are we having this conversation right now? Um, you know, for, one of the things that a friend of mine says about part, part of so, one of the many effects of social media, one of it is it allows because it is so emotionally driven people, but also politicians and others take these high hyperbolic positions and we we get ourselves in a place where we then are are having to try to execute on the hyperbole like the most extreme thing whether it's you know you know whether it's a policy position or whether it's um description of something that happened in war the the hyperbolic nature of social media keeps driving us to this 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 strange place where um we're trying to enact these absurd we take these public positions that are absurdly hyperbolic and we then then people find themselves in a place where we're trying to actually make policy decisions um on these on this where i'm going with all this is i wanted to hear more about like your take on the the hospital explosion and how that story evolved and is you know does this moment is you know it, with the future of generative AI and other, you know, increasingly complex media tools, like what does that mean more broadly? But but really, like the like a TikTok of the of the hospital strike, the hospital the explosion at the hospital, and how it was covered by the New York Times and others, and still covered in Arab media. So when that happened, like my my initial reaction was okay i need to i need i i went and i looked and saw like how every outlet had been covering it and like how i was going to distribute this news on instagram and i decided that i think this is a carousel that needs to have like all th there's at least three sides to the story right now we don't have the details and i was careful to choose the bbc's because the bbc had like it had its live page and it said, you know, it didn't have a specific number as to how many civilians had been killed. Um, and it specifically attributed to Palestinian officials. It didn't say Hamas officials, even though like, you know, it's Gaza. So therefore every official there is by definition Hamas. And then it had an immediate response from the IDF spokesperson, uh, which I like put on my second second post and then the third post was sort of like what is this hospital and then you know it was a non-affiliated to any side hospital it was a baptist hospital um and so i was really careful to 
And I didn't even really caption. I remember I said, like, I have no words except for pray for these souls because, like, what? Um, and we didn't know. All you can think about is the fact that there's there's a hospital. There's been an ho- explosion at a hospital. I mean, I think, the, I think the initial thing said strike. Didn't say Israeli strike. Or did it? I can't remember now. Yes, it did. It did. The BBC said in an Israeli strike, but attributed to Palestinian officials. So Palestinian officials were saying that this is an Israeli strike. So like that at that time, like that was, I think, the right thing for the BBC to do because that it was just you're disseminating the information that you've been given and you are explaining who's been given it to you. And you are also explaining like, why what they would why they would be saying what they're saying right and therefore it's up to the audience to decide what they think i mean it's not the media's job to be telling the audience what to think quite frankly but not every media feels that way and that's not every media's model business model i think you know like in hindsight in hindsight well, I think also like continuing to say strike then once the Biden conversation happened and once the tape was out, like, I think that's wrong because there's very much now evidence that's shown that it perhaps was not a strike. So like it should have been explosion. But like even even us, like we we were veering towards saying strike and then we're correcting and saying explosion. And so, like, you just have to be discerning, right? You have to, like, think before you post or present or report or whatever. And and it's difficult because it's rapid-fire information coming out. And also, I mean, like, depending on what news organization, like, you know, some news organizations live off of being first. And that's, like, part they – if they're not, then their ratings go down and then they can't continue. Like, the BBC doesn't have that. That's not an issue the BBC has. So it's less worried about being first because it is way more important for the BBC to be right. Because it's not right, then you lose your credibility. And that's very difficult to get back. You know, but even now, still, like I'm getting people saying, well, you know, dissecting the tape and dissecting the the strike site and or yeah i mean like the explosion site and dissecting how many civilians were killed and again we're back to that well but how many people died right so it's like oh well like how did the baby how were the babies killed oh but how many people died in a hospital attack or hospital explosion or hospital strike you know what i mean and so it's just the fact that we are we are dissecting such awful events i think i wonder i think social media is good for a lot of reasons like it connects the world in a way that we never have had i've never seen such global attention on this conflict and i've been covering this part of the world for a long time um so i would say that that's a good thing because people are motivated motivated to spring to action to help um, and also, I do think, you know, it, it puts pressure on all people in charge, whether it's the good guys or the bad guys, depending on who you think the good guys are, or the bad guys are, it puts pressure on them. And uh, except for I think the downside is when you you get desensitized, I think what's happening is that the audience is getting desensitized and it's 
like normal for babies to be killed to the point where you're discussing how they were killed. That's it's yes, it's remarkable. Um, I want to I want to get to your view on um, just how you report, like how you process information and how you do it. You but I but but first I want to come back a little bit to sort of the Saudi role. So that you're right. That is a mo- that is quite a moment when you have the leader of Hamas being interviewed by a woman on Saudi state television. It, uh, can you help people understand why that's so remarkable? So not only is it a woman on Saudi state television, it is a woman on Saudi state television, absolutely grilling him about and getting him to just completely cave and lose his momentum because he's quite media savvy. And so that's, that just, I mean, I think that goes to show that, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I would doubt that, you know, the editorial behind this, um, like wouldn't have known that this is the direction that it's going to go in. Right. Or wouldn't have had some sort of idea. And so that, that in and of itself shows that like Hamas does not have the kind of support in the rest of the region that it may be used to. Cause I get used to sort of be, all right, we don't like these guys tactics, but Israel's just, unacceptable and so they're kind of a necessary evil but that's clearly not the case anymore is that what is that attributed to i mean so mohammed bin salman has you know the first time i think most americans heard his name is when he was associated with killing or ordering the killing of Khashoggi. um in the years since, he has seemed to have taken a number of steps to liberalize Saudi Arabia, allowing women to drive, allowing women to leave the country without a male escort. It seems to me that this not would have happened on state media without some at least broader feeling from MBS that he's going to allow these kind of discussions or, or are we reading too much into it? No, I mean, uh, from from what I gather, I mean, he gave a sit down interview with Brett Baer and was very candid. So I think he's, it's very obvious between things like that and also his sports diplomacy and um, the kind of social reforms, which, mind you, so I covered Saudi Arabia before MBS a lot. I was embedded with the Saudi military when they started their Yemen war. And I was wearing an abaya and hijab under my flak jacket and helmet. And wow. it was very, um, like I couldn't drive then. If I like being there, I couldn't drive then. Um, I went to that was back when women's gyms were illegal still. And I went to this like underground women's gym, which was wild because I you walk you're you're in this kind of like dusty, seemingly abandoned villa on the outskirts of Riyadh, and then I went inside and it's like Britney Spears is bumping and these like beautiful women climbing rock walls. It was wild. Um I went to this mixer where Saudi men and women were mixing networking which used to be not allowed and it was busted by the religious police. So this was all pre MBS. And frankly, if Khashoggi wouldn't have happened, I, I think MBS would have been seen as like a global rock star, but 
Khashoggi happened, very unfortunate. Um, and I think Set definitely forever clouded these changes that he's brought. What's also interesting is that in Saudi, what we're seeing is a revolution from the top down and revolutions usually happen from the bottom up. I mean, <laughs> after he rounded up the you know business people in the Ritz, like arguably some of them were upside down, <laughs> but yeah. we're seeing a really interesting shift in Saudi Arabia. And part of that is because he recognizes that he has this huge population, which is pretty young, and they need to be trained in in industries other than oil, given the direction that the energy market is going. And so he's actually moving all of his media entities from Dubai to Riyadh and like they're building a media city in Riyadh. And so that's going to mean they're going to need to train journalists. So I wasn't surprised to see that interview because that's what's happening in terms of the information space. So I think times are definitely changing. I think this Hamas attack throws a wrench in all of it, which was done intentionally. However, it's not going to last forever. And I think maybe it's been delayed, but I think eventually it will continue. The region will continue to towards normalization, not least because I mean, it's just a better economic decision for Saudi Arabia in particular, because also I'm starting to see whenever I'm in Riyadh, I'm starting to see American, way more American investors. And but there's still a bit of like I had a meeting with a official here in Dubai who said that they want they have plenty of European investors here and European talent, but they want to attract more American talent. But there's still kind of there's still a mindset among Americans that doesn't quite fit with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the Gulf in general. I think it's getting there and it's changing. I think the economic opportunities are a huge draw, but it's the security situation is what makes people in the US in particular think twice. And so it is in everybody in the Gulf's interest to have a secure region. I have noticed in Dubai that they're like, you don't usually, it's very safe here, right? It's one of those places where you can leave your phone and go wherever and like come back and it'll still be there. Or like anything else for that matter. Like there's, for some reason, there's just not really much petty crime here. Um, and to the point where you get a bit, like you sort of lose your guard a bit. And when you go back to my back in London, I'm back in DC. I'm like, oh, I need to totally not in Dubai anymore. Uh, but it's for the first time, though, I've seen um, security around. Wow. So I, I think I think it's on heightened. I think it's heightened alert. They haven't said they haven't announced it, and they're probably not going to because they. It's very, you know, it's it's controlled. They want to they they maintain the peace. Um, because they control the peace and everyone kind of recognizes that. Um, and if you disturb the peace, the consequences are quite harsh. Um, 
I mean, I was speaking to an Emirati official who once said that they see they see Dubai as or the UAE really as kind of like Switzerland. So they don't, you know, the Iranians don't like that the Emiratis are friends with the Israelis. The Israelis don't like that the Emiratis are friendly with the Iranians, but they're like, we don't care. We're not taking sides. And that is beneficial to everyone. And it, I mean, it probably is because you need that. You need that person. It's just like it's debatable as to, you know, why Qatar houses Hamas leaders. It's like, well, we've seen how vital their role has been in getting now at least two American hostages out. I want to, I so badly want to go back to hear more about your experience with Saudi, but I'm going to say that. Can you talk a little bit more about that dynamic too? So whether it's Qatar or uh, Dubai, like how, and, and how the, just the, the economics work, you know, and yes, it is beneficial. I mean, it, of course they were deeply involved in the, I hesitate to call it the, I don't know what to call it, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the agreement with the Taliban and the Trump administration. Like, explain a little bit about their role uh, in the last few years. And of course, this, this not the seventh, what fleet is there, the, I mean, the where the U.S. Navy base is, what fleet is yeah. there, I'm to figure that out. Aludeid. Aludeid? Is that the air base? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, I think it's Aludeid. Um yeah, I mean, they, uh, of course, they were key to the Afghanistan withdrawal, which I guess was always going to happen. Um, obviously, how it happened was atrocious. But it's one of those things where when I brought this up to Qatari diplomats, it's it's kind of like they almost... I mean, they don't say it directly like this, but the translation is effectively, we do America's dirty work. And if you think about it, Taliban negotiations, Hamas, Iran, they're not wrong. And I think you probably need that. You probably need that role in the region, which is why that base is still there. But I don't know if you recall when the GCC crisis was going on and the blockade between Qatar and the UAE. Talk about information war. There was this huge information war playing out in Washington. The Washington was the battlefield. I remember I was speaking to, I'm going to leave the organization name nameless, but it was a very reputable organization. And I was absolutely stunned. The bureau chief, I was having lunch with them. They're recording me for a pretty big job, actually. Um, and they said, so what side of the GCC crisis are you on? What do you mean? They said, well, who do you talk to? Do you talk to Qataris or do you talk to the Saudis or do you talk to the Emiratis? I was like, I talked to all of them. And they're like, they all talk to you? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And that is how entrenched the information war had gotten in just this one crisis which was i mean a pretty big deal like it was a, it was a pretty big deal at the time um and that kind of fed, i mean that fed into my trump my trump russia investigation work ended up becoming about like foreign influence operations and and actually like gulf money that had gone into 
into the Trump world, which I mean, now we're seeing it with Jared Kushner and Saudi Arabia, and that's no secret. Um, but yeah, I mean, each of these, each of these countries kind of have to have these rules. And I think with Saudi, it's really interesting. So in America, we were raised like we're king or queen of the world, right? We pledge allegiance to the flag every morning and we're, we run the, we run the show. And only when I've gone to two other places have I felt that similar sense of we run the show and it's Russia and Saudi Arabia. And I think, I think MBS recognizes that there's a lot to tap into in the country. Now, how we feel about that, given like who's running this effort and what happened with Khashoggi is a completely different story. Um, but, you know, the thing is, if you're if you're really investing in uh, media and journalism and you're training journalists, journalists are are then, you know, by definition, going to think critically like you there's only so much you can control when you're creating an ecosystem of media and journalism and journalists like you're not really going to be able to control everybody's thoughts like there is inevitably going to be criticism so i think it'll be interesting to watch how he deals with that because you know obviously um there are there are a, a larger part of the population than one would think is not moving as quickly with the social changes that MBS has implemented as he would like. Like women driving, it's not officials. Like obviously if officials are team women driving because like they're implementing it, but it's the local population that's still very conservative that doesn't like seeing women driving. Does that play into how Saudi um, engages? Like the, the official Saudi position, he's, it's, I mean, he's walking a fine line in some of these modernization steps, and it seems he can only do so much at a time. And what is that going to require? Again, it's back to the question, what is the street, how is the street going to handcuff him in next steps with Iran and Hamas and Israel? I mean... I guess we'll see, but I don't really see how how they can handcuff him in a significant way right now if he's making incremental steps, which is what it looks like he's doing. I mean, it's interesting with the um, the whole question of the intelligence about saying that, you know, Israel was not behind the hospital explosion. It really reminded me of the intelligence saying that MBS was behind Khashoggi's killing because there are plenty of people here who don't believe U.S. intelligence that MBS was behind Khashoggi's killing. The same way there are plenty of people here that don't believe U.S. intelligence that yeah, not behind the explosion. Wow, well, yeah, that's an interesting point. There's two more things I want. One short thing and then one probably pretty long thing. The short thing is being embedded with the Saudi military at the outset of the war in Yemen is uh, remarkable. So how did that happen? Uh, 
so <laughs> um i i was i went to saudi arabia on one of john Kerry's trips this is john Kerry, as i used to travel with him when he was secretary of state i was in the diplomatic press pool so that i used to be the state department used to be my b and he was going to Saudi, and the BBC uh, used to have a lot of problems getting visas to Saudi. You know, I, I think they actually still do. But um, last year, actually, they rejected news ga- the news gathering visas, and I was the only one that got one. But I was going for my documentary, so um, yeah, there's a bit of beef there. Um, and so I went into the State Department press office and said, "Hey, like, you know, I'm going to be." in the BBC seat for this trip. And they looked and they were like, Kianpur, is that Iranian? And I said, yeah, my dad's Iranian. They're like, you can't get a Saudi visa. I said, well, I am the State Department reporter, so you need to at least try. They're like, okay. Not only did I get a visa, I got a two-week extended visa. And so my bosses were like, oh my God. So you need to stay there and like do all of the reporting. And that was when we got, we, we, oh my gosh, I went all over. I mean, I would say that Saudi Arabia is like, strangely, what ended up happening is Saudi Arabia is like one of the countries that I've probably seen the most of in the world. Because I ended up, we ended up going to the Iraq border because an ISIS attack had happened there. And we were, the general had invited us and he didn't really speak much English. And, but his way of bonding with me was to help him pick curtains from his house. <laughs> makes sense (laughs) okay um and so so yeah so while i was there i met a lot of people we did a bunch of like long form reporting and a bunch of stories and it it was kind of their sort of new muscular foreign policy was starting to percolate we were starting to kind of get a sense of it it was an interesting shift and then I get back to Washington and next thing you know, like one of the sources that I'd met rings me up and says, hey, this is about to happen. Do you want to come in bed with us? I'm like, wow. Right. At one point they were going to do a ground invasion. And I was just like, right. I will embed ground invasion with, I would embed in a ground invasion with certain militaries, but I don't think this was one of them. Um, but real quick, to to explain what the war was about. So, I mean, it's it's always so hard to know where to start with these things. But in short, the northern part of Yemen is Shia. The Shia tribes had been receiving uh, support from Iran. They had marched on the capital, and there was essentially a civil war in Yemen. And Saudi Arabia came on side against the Iranian proxies. Exactly. Right. It effectively became a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia in Yemen. So, yeah, and what, so once again, back to the dynamic between the Arabs and the Persians and Sunni and Shia. Yeah. Well, uh, so obviously the Iranians are Shia and the um, most of the Arabs are Sunni, with the exception of the Arabs in um, Lebanon. The Shia Arabs in Lebanon and some of the Shia Arabs in Iraq. Um, uh, so obviously the Shia in Yemen sided with, were supported by Iran. Um, I think what's interesting is that you know the Hamas is not Shia, Palestinian Islamic Jihad is not Shia. 
Um, but, uh, and actually Saudi Arabia does have a Shia population, but it's smaller. It's in Dammam. It's in the southern, western part of the country. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, Yemen became a proxy war between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And obviously Iran had its, had its agenda and its interests in Yemen because it was creating this Shia crescent, Syria, you know, the Shias in Syria, um, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, all over. And I mean, that really carried on until, I mean, I would say obviously there were ceasefires, but it was really until the China hosted deal between Iran and Saudi that the Yemen war seemed to really actually like maybe be at an end. How was it that now, China was in position to do well, that? Well, China obviously has good relations with with uh, with Iran. You know, I wonder. I wonder, and I haven't I haven't started to dig into this, but I'm going to. Is whether there is a role for China in the current Israel Palestine problem? I wonder where China's role might end up being here because they sort of seem to be, they sort of seem to be potentially interested in feeling this role of, I mean, obviously they want to be a global, global power and like the global hegemon and the U S and China are battling. Right. And, and the U S has traditionally been the peace broker in the middle East. And yet it was China that managed to broker this deal. And so I wonder if they're going to have a go at this, at this conflict. We'll see. So you th I mean, but fundamentally think the difference was that the U.S. just didn't have the juice with Iran to negotiate the deal, whereas China was in a better position because they had closer relationships with both. How come, okay, I said, I, this is one more smaller question. It's going to lead into the bigger one. Why has... Hamas, a Sunni Islamist, well, I don't want to pilot like the the military wing of Hamas certainly I, I think is you can fairly call a Sunni Islamist organization. Um, why has Iran been a well, not I can see why Iran would want to, but why has why has uh, Hamas morphed from an offshoot of you know the Muslim Brotherhood? with close ties to Egypt, again, Sunni groups to Iran over the last 20 years. Why has that happened? Well, so Iran, it's more about, it's about Palestine and Iran's war with Israel, they say, they've told me, is that they feel like they have to be the ones who are the custodians of Palestine and they have to be the ones to liberate Palestine from the apartheid state and they they fancy themselves as not just not just about palestine either necessarily like they they like to bring up the south african apartheid and where they stood during that um so it is very much about islam as a whole and not so much the sectarian aspect of it 
it's that Palestine is a holy land for Islam and nobody else is looking after it. And therefore it's Iran's responsibility as the Islamic Republic of Iran to liberate Palestine. What has happened with Arab state support of Hamas over the years? Has it changed? Well, I mean, arguably we would see right now, particularly with this interview that happened yesterday that, yeah, it has lessened. How are you covering the war? And I, and it's an enormously broad question, but I was hoping that you could talk a little bit through who, who you're talking to in various places, whether it's Gaza or Israel or elsewhere, and what you're hearing from them. Um, I mean, so I think being in Dubai, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I've got the kind of official angles, right? Like speaking to the officials in the Gulf and what this means diplomatically and speaking to security officials. But then also, I mean, you know, I was just texting with a guy inside Gaza and the messages are, are heartbreaking. Like he's literally live, live texting me about the bombs that are falling. I mean, they're hearing bombs falling and they don't know where they're going to fall. Um, and I think, you know, the Israeli side of the story is well covered. There's the entire world's media is in Israel, but they're not in Gaza. A lot of that, not not only like not being able to like a difficulty getting there, it's just like safety. You know, a lot of they wouldn't pass the risk assessments to to be there. And so a lot of the people who are on the ground in Gaza or in places like Gaza are often uh, freelancers, right? Because you're assuming the risk yourself. You know, the corporation isn't going to have to assume that risk because like, there's like insurance and all kinds of stuff. Um, so, I mean, I'm speaking to sources all over, I mean, including my U.S. national security sources who are in Washington to like kind of get that angle, Europeans. I mean, this story impacts everyone. I mean, even even Latin America. I mean, even the the Colombian Colombian officials are coming out because like they have ties to some of the people in power in the Palestinian apparatus. And so it's interesting because like you think that this is just a conflict that's isolated to this region, but it's very much not. How do you think about part? This is something that we think a lot about is we're a relatively small organization and trying to decide. Because even the choice of what you decide to cover uh, illustrates some bias on your part, whether it's, you know, what you have access to or what you think you can explain, what hasn't been covered. How do you think about that? Uh, and I'm very, very conscious of it. And it's it's the good news is that it's showing through because that's the feedback that I'm getting from the audience that I'm not even asking for this feedback. It's just showing up. Um, is I'm very careful to make sure that I'm covering the, all sides that I possibly can. Um, I think what I'm, I, I think what I realize that what value I can add is people really need explanations and they also need a kind of almost like a big sister who explains to you what's going on, what happened, why, how did we get here? Like the questions that they might not want to ask publicly because they feel embarrassed, like they feel like it's something they should know. 
And so they're so I've asked people to private and I'm getting so many so many DMs. I asked people to privately DM. They're like, can you do a video about this? Can you do a video about that? So I've been doing that. But then I'm also, you know, I'm also like when when stuff happens, I'm I'm doing just like just screenshots of headlines, but I'm being careful, obviously, like which headlines I'm screenshotting and like which outlets, like even, okay, so Daily Mail had a really good map. And I was like, I was like a little bit like, oh, Daily Mail, but it had a really good map. And then somebody put there like Daily Mail though. I was like, listen, I checked, I literally cross-checked all of the reporting in this article before I posted because I agree, Daily Mail. Uh, and so I'm I'm being really conscious, but I'm also like one person, right? And so I'm just not I'm not trying to be BBC or CNN because I'm not. I never will be, and I don't want to be because I actually used to be. So you know, I'm, all of my experience from being the person who was on the ground because there's plenty of people on the ground. I don't need to be on the ground. The value that I can bring is providing the context and providing the peripheral stuff that that you know the big news organizations nowadays like not only do they not have the space for it like they don't have the they don't have the bandwidth they don't have the people there have just been so many layoffs right they don't have enough people to do to do the breaking news as it is much less the bigger stuff um and so and i think i think the what i've also found is the connection the direct connection between the audience is really valuable so and so like doing Instagram lives with different, um, you know, different perspectives that you might not hear. Like I did an Instagram live with a friend of mine, actually, that I went to college with, who's now a journalist, who is a gay Arab man who was, you know, um, giving the Palestinian side of the story. And it was like some inconvenient truths and and difficult things to hear. But also, like, you you have to hear those stories because, you know, like I was texting with this guy in Gaza right now and he was saying, no, we don't want Hamas. And we asked for elections, but President Abbas didn't allow it, except for like, you know, now they're coming in and in order to kill Hamas, they don't want to just kill Hamas. They want to kill Hamas and their family because, like, you know, that kid's going to end up being the next Hamas. And like, that's how they think. And it's important to hear that that's how they think, because then you understand, like, how does Hamas even keep continuing? How does it keep continuing? And so uh, it, uh, yeah, I mean, doing this social, like solely on social media, I think has its benefits, but it also has an extra step of discernment because also it's just me on my own. I mean, I do have a co-founder now and we're like formally launching next month on November 11th. And I have, we together have pretty much decided that we want to focus on the peace side of this. We want to focus on the facilitating the conversations that aren't happening. We want to focus on the voices of women because we've seen traditionally, historically that when women are at the table, peace ends up happening. And so we're kind of taking we're going to be leaning more into that angle, but I still have a kind of, I think, responsibility to the big stuff to keep the audience across the big stuff, um, at least in terms of reacting to what's happening in the news, not necessarily breaking it, 
but reacting. But like, you know, sometimes I'm getting I'm getting news lines from sources and I just, you know, I just tweet that out. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think there needs to be a level of flexibility in like this kind of social journalism, I guess we should call it. Cause it's not really digital journalism. Um, yeah. I think, I think there needs to be a flexibility. Um, but also, you know, the same sort of editorial standards that you would have, in the TV journalism that we're used to. I know this question would change day by day and it'd be hour by hour, but what is the context you think that people are generally missing? If, if you could pick one or two or three things again, I know it's very difficult. I mean, I honestly think the context, unfortunately, is the history. And because this history for this con for this conflict in particular, this history is so complicated. And there's so many different players in it. So I think, I think like probably what I need to do is include that history and bits of that history. So like whatever ends up, whatever development there is in, in the news that I'm discussing, like I think that I need to relate it to, okay, this, this is happening now. And like this may be why this part of history may be why or this is what it's most related to. Um, but it's also, you know, like you're moving fast and people don't have, they scroll. So like, for example, somebody posted on one of my videos, like just being like, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And then he went back and he said, oh, I didn't watch the whole video. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Good on it. (laughs) So the, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's like, you have to find a way (laughs) to get contacts, history, news, attention everything in like 20 seconds because like when i watch my video insights so i i i now i do them like i only do because on stories you record a minute so then i'll record a minute in stories and then i'll take it over to reels and then i'll like put the captions and stuff on it and like i've just decided not to like make it super highly produced or anything because like also the algorithm if you do it use external text in the algorithm it pushes it down so like so like there's all these tricks and stuff um and like people are saying that people are saying that if they're mentioning israel and palestine the algorithm algorithm is pushing their content down and so they're like finding they're like adding like instead of s they're putting like the money sign and the at sign stuff like that i don't really know if that's true i haven't really seen that but i, I don't know i mean I, I might test it out and see um but uh, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, um, it's not easy and I haven't figured out the foolproof formula. I don't really think anybody has, to be honest, because I think the algorithm is an ever changing beast. Um, I even like, I have friends who work on it, like it's their job. And even they say, yeah, there really isn't like a foolproof blueprint. Like that is that is going to be the same all the time because it's a pretty fluid platform. At least Instagram is I, I Twitter or X, I just think is, I actually think I, I'm not. So the Iran women revolution was an Instagram revolution, the green revolution of 2009, their last, their political revolution that they had, that was a Twitter revolution. I really think this crisis is very much also on Instagram. I think, yeah. Instagram is a really interesting tool. Um, and I don't, I mean, 
I actually started a news with Sue's account on TikTok early 2020, like before anybody else was really on it. But then like I covered national security and my sources were like, you need to get off of this. This is a security risk. Um, so I haven't gone back on it. I mean, I could like, you know, I could get back on it and have a separate phone and stuff like all of that. Fine. Probably will. Um, but I don't think that it's, I don't think, um, I mean, I don't, I don't, haven't really seen, cause usually, usually TikTok videos get transferred over to Instagram. Like people share their TikTok videos to Instagram. And I don't, I haven't really seen very much TikTok on this on Instagram. Our, our stuff on our TikTok is by far our lowest performing. We're on it and I'm debating getting off. It's even worth the time because it's, it is a fraction of our, what our views are on the other sites on Instagram and YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you like YouTube Shorts. Apparently, I mean, I think that's my next. It's just there's only so much bandwidth one person has. Yeah. Um, but I think YouTube Shorts, I'm told, is actually the sort of next frontier, but also the best for monetizing. I mean, the other thing is like I'm over here posting all of this stuff on Instagram. But it's not really monetizing. Can you talk a little bit about your work and where you would push people to learn more about what you've done? My BBC work obviously is all on the BBC, um, but I am I am now launching something called Helmet to Heels, which is um, news, travel, fashion, finance, and essentially uses verticals that are social media friendly to newsfluence the audience into getting engaged in um, the most important stories of our time. And a big part of this is geared towards um, women and the men who support women in power and elevating women's voices, particularly in marginalized societies and continuing my women building peace series that started at the BBC, but under the helmet to heels umbrella. Incredibly important. And we're so well aligned too. Like it's really, I really appreciate your time because um, I think what you're doing is important. And I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be huge. I think you're gonna have an incredibly powerful reaction to it. Yeah. And I think, um, I think what I found is when I was, gearing i mean i finally i now co-founding with a friend of mine from college and it's perfect because it she's jewish american i'm iranian american and i think these polar the polarization of the world benefits certain people who are in power and peace would put quite a few people out of jobs and I do feel like it is up to us and those of us who are part of communities that are supposedly pitted against each other to come together and not let that happen. And so I think what I found in the lead up to kind of in the pitch phase of looking for looking for seed funding and investment. And I mean, quite frankly, I was looking at I was seeing all these, you know, all these people, mostly dudes, uh, starting news platforms, media companies getting funding for news platforms that weren't doing anything different. And Semaphore. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably cut that out. Um, so, and yet I found it was quite difficult. And, and so I think Helmet to Heels, I really am adamant about it not being something that is exclusively women and excludes men. Because actually, I've found so many men, you know, like yourself, who want to be supportive of this kind of space, want to be supportive of elevating the voices of women in Afghanistan and Iran and, you know, other conflicts around the world and not just conflicts, but, you know, helmet to heels is from the front lines to the front row. I mean, we're, we face conflicts that we have to overcome in all different industries. It's not just the geopolitical industry. Um, And so I, I found though that, People need to see, they need to see a product before they can really invest in it. And so we're launching on November 11th, mainly because um, it's the day after the Association of International Broadcasters Award Ceremony has shortlisted me as pre- presenter of the year. Wow, for, congratulations. You know, yeah, so for Women Building Peace and for Out of the Shadows, because 2022 was a big year for me. Um, you know, I could have just taken a year off, you know, like taking a break. 2023 could have just been me chilling. But no, I decided I want to launch a music company with no money. Because that's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so we've, we've decided on 11-11 for that's one reason, but also most importantly, it's, uh, it's Veterans Day. It's Armistice Day. It's peace. And my whole career really has been centered around conflict and war. I would actually say, like, I would say, because people often ask me, they say, how did you get into this line of work and why did you choose this topic? And I said, I don't really feel like I necessarily chose it. I feel like it. I was led into it. So, I mean, I one of my first memories is of watching the first Gulf War, the news on the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I... I got into current affairs because I would read Time magazine for kids and and um, it was all about Kosovo. And then, you know, I chose TV journalism because I watched 9-11 coverage on the little TV boxes on the cart that we used to have in school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We were all crowded around this TV watching people jump out of buildings was the Twin Towers were crumbling down. And then I watched the invasion of Iraq on the BBC from my living room. And then I went to Oxford and the 777 terror attack happened. So it's like, it's just been constantly followed me. Conflict has constantly followed me. And I just sort of feel like I, Women Building Peace came about because like many people, I was sitting in lockdown during COVID with way too much time to think and alone in my head. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. My me wall, you know, the, the, the wall of me with famous people and people I'd interviewed and whatnot. And I was like, wow, I mean, that is a crazy black book of contacts if I do say so myself but what to do with it it's just like hanging out on my wall shouldn't I be doing something with this and then that's how I came up with this idea I was like I'm the I'm the bridge 
I go between Washington and war zones. I shuttle between Washington and war zones and switch between helmets and heels. That's where helmet to heels came from. There's actually an image. There's a photo that I took um, when I, I was in Iraq covering the ISIS wars, the Mount Sinjar massacre. Um, was awful uh and i was there when james foley was beheaded and um and i had just returned to lebanon where i was based but i was going back to the hill to basically be like this is what i've seen and like you know hold senators account essentially and so i was packing and i had my outfit i'll send you the photo oh actually i had it on my i wonder if you can see it let's see well, I'd love to that? show it. Yeah, send it to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll a, take a screenshot of it. That. Um, so, yeah, so I had my dress, my blazer, and my heels, and then I had my my flak jacket and a helmet that I was going to pack away. And then I looked at it, I was like, helmet to heels. And this was back when on Instagram, we used to, like, filter, over-filter everything, so it still got the, like, green. <laughs> <laughs> somebody i posted i remember like some some hater some hater posted and said that's staged well oh it is inshallah the cover photo of my soon to be very successful media company i think it's brilliant (laughs) Uh, and we're certainly rooting for you and hope to talk you know many times i'd love to do this as much as we can and uh we will do everything we can to any, anything you produce, we would love to share um, and know more about. Yeah, no, I mean, I would. I'm really curious as to what, like, how you guys are. Are we still recording? Should we still recording? Yeah. Okay. Well, me. Yeah, let's wrap it up. So, uh, Suzanne, thank you very much. Um, and real quick, where do people go to stand, stay, to follow Helmet and Heels, and follow your launch? So uh, right now for the coverage, you can find me on social media, my handle, which is Kiampor World. But we will launch on a landing page, helmettoheels.com, that will be live on 11-11-2023. Can't wait. Important work. Thank you, Suzanne.